Yeah, remind if you're parenting, you want to take your children off to their various spaces. This is your moment to do that. Just while it's happening, I'm just going to say good morning and hello. And in case you haven't met me before, my name is Brad, and I'm one of the pastors here at Connect. And it's wonderful to be with you here in the 10 o'clock service in Midridge. And I trust that uh, our group in Musenberg is doing well under John's ministry this morning, but it's great to be here. We're going to continue in our series that we've been doing in Mark's gospel. Some of you all know that. You've been journeying with us. We were in Mark chapter 9 for the last week and a bit, um, 9 and a bit more. But uh, this morning we're going into chapter 12. We're having a little bit of a jump, and uh, I wanted to start by, by asking this question. What if someone had to say to you, you know, Brad, what's Christianity all about? What's it really about? What does it mean to be a Christian? I wonder how you would answer that question. Hopefully, some of you have had to answer that question um, because, you know, we like to meet those who, who need to know Jesus. Right? But I wonder what you would say. Would you say, you know, we, like actually what you need to know is that we are all sinners and that we, we need the saving grace of Jesus to help us be reconciled to a God who desires to love us? Would you say maybe that God is real and that He desires to be in a relationship with us? Would you tell them that to be a Christian is actually all about knowing God and loving Him? Or that being a Christian is about living your life in submission to God and following Him in obedience? Would you say some of those things together? Would you say something else? What if, what if being a Christian was actually a very simple thing? See, this morning we're going to look at a, at a passage of Scripture where Jesus gets asked a kind of similar question. And, and we're going to allow and explore his answer and allow that answer that he gives to begin to, to explore our hearts and to uncover what he might find in there. And the story that we're going to, to read comes from Mark chapter 12, as I said earlier. And, and this story is one of many in a collection of interactions that Jesus has with the religious leaders of his day. Right? They're the Pharisees, the Herodians, and the Sadducees. They're a collection of religious leaders of Jesus' time. And, uh, and these interactions that he has with them are kind of sparked off by a story that he tells. You might have heard the story. It's called the parable of the tenants. And uh, it's a little bit of like, it'd be quite a rude thing to say to your friends. This is kind of what Jesus does with the religious leaders. He says, guys, I want to tell you a story. Right? Here's the story. There was once a farmer and he had a farm. He decided he wanted to go on holiday to a foreign land. And uh, so he hired some tenants to look after his farm. And while they were looking after his farm, the harvest came. And so he sent some servants to collect the harvest and the tenants murdered the servants, right? And so after sending a couple of servants, he decides, well, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to send my son to the farm, and they'll respect my son, surely. And so he sends his son to the farm. But again, the tenants decide, well, if we kill the son, then we can steal everything and call the farm our own. And so they murder the son as well. And he says, what do you think the farmer is going to do when he finds out what the tenants have been doing to his servants and to his son? Well, he's going to come back. He's going to seek justice against them, and he's going to put them all to death. That's a fun story, right? Well, that's what Jesus shares with the religious leaders. And as he's saying that, they kind of begin to perceive there's a hidden agenda going on behind the story. He's actually telling them the story about themselves. They're the tenants, and the, the farmer is coming back to put them to death. And so they get a little bit upset, they get a little bit frustrated, and so they decide in a collection of encounters, you know, if you're going to shame us in front of a whole bunch of people as the leaders of God's people, well, we're going to put you to shame as well. And so they get a group, they get gathered together as a bunch of different groups, and they have these different stories that are recorded for us in Mark, Matthew, and Luke of how they try to put Jesus to shame. And the story that we pick up is the third of these stories. 
And um, this is where the Pharisees kind of try and do this. And it has a slightly different beginning in, in Matthew's gospel and in Mark's gospel. In Matthew, we see this picture of a conspiracy. We see a group of Pharisees, they get together and they say, okay, we need one guy. Okay, you, you are the religious expert. You're the legal expert here. You know the law better than anyone. We want to send you to ask Jesus this question. And the question is this, what is the greatest commandment? Right? This is a, a question that was commonly debated by rabbis at the time. The idea here is to get Jesus to comment on this question and then to deride his answer and say, well, clearly, you know, if you think that's the greatest commandment, then you've devalued these other sections of the law. Because remember, there are 613 commandments if you're a Pharisee or an Old Testament Jew. There's a lot of commandments. So the plan is get Jesus to elevate one, denigrate the rest, and then we all jump on Jesus' back for what he's chosen. That's kind of how Matthew's version of the story goes. Mark tells it a little bit differently. See, in Mark, what happens is a teacher of the law, he doesn't act in a conspiracy, but he acts somewhat on his own accord, and he seems genuinely intrigued by the answers that Jesus has given to the previous two encounters where the Sadducees and the Herodians have tried to put him to shame. And so he's prompted to ask Jesus, of all the commandments, which would you say is the most important? And most interestingly, his answer, he appears to be genuinely interested in the answer that Jesus gives, and he actually affirms it. I don't entirely know what to make of those different starts to the story. Perhaps both of them are true. Perhaps there is a group of Pharisees, and they do get together, and they do pick a guy who's the best legal expert in their team, and they say, we want you to go ahead and ask Jesus this question. What they don't know is that in his heart, he's been listening to what Jesus has been saying and recognizing, you know what, maybe there's some validity in what this guy is up to. I'm, I'm actually really interested to see what he has to say. Well, we won't ever really know, but that kind of sets the stage for the story that we're going to read and the way in which Jesus responds to it. So let's read it together. Mark chapter 12, 28 to 34. You can follow along on the screen or read along in your own Bibles. But here's the story. One of the teachers of the law came and heard that they were debating. And noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him of all the commandments, which is the most important. The most important one answered Jesus is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, and with all your strength. And to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. That's our story this morning. What is Christianity all about? How would you sum it up? Which one of the 613 commandments in the Old Testament is more important than all the others? Well, Jesus picks two. And he ranks them first and second. He says, love God, love people. And if you know King of Kings Baptist down in Sun Valley, that's basically their mission statement minus the Great Commission at the end, make disciples. Love God, love people. And we're going to explore this, these very simple ideas because, you know, that's not complicated. Love God, love people, along with a couple of other things that we can note. But before we do that, I want to really pray for us. I want to pray for us because I believe God wants to do something amongst us this morning. We don't just want to read the text of Scripture, maybe a story that you know well and move on. We want to allow the Spirit to speak life to us, to invigorate something in us, to set a fire in our hearts again. 
And so let's take a moment and let's pray and then we'll dig in together. Lord, we want to thank you and bless you this morning that you are here in our midst and amongst us. That your church is now the temple of the living God. That the Holy Spirit of God is in our midst. We want to bless you for that, God. We want to thank you, Lord, for your word that is alive. It is living and active. It is able to divide between soul and spirit, bone and marrow. It's able to speak life into us. And where your word lands in us and lands in good soil, it produces in us, God, a crop, a fruit of righteousness, 30, 60, and 100 times what was sown. And it's our deep desire, God, that as we look at your word this morning, that by your spirit, you would touch our hearts and touch our lives and pour yourself into us that we would be full of you to live this out and to go day by day in the fullness and the greatness of the, of the, of the God we love. We ask this in your wonderful name, King Jesus. Amen. Amen. Jesus answers this lawyer by quoting two passages of Scripture. And the first one he cites is what we call the Shema. Right, this is from Deuteronomy chapter 6. It's actually from verses 4 to 9. And he starts with just verse 4. And, and this is recited daily in, in the synagogues. Whenever the Jews meet in a synagogue, they say this together. Right, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is the heart of of, of Jewish culture. It, it forms the basis for a very deep-seated and abiding monotheism that exists in Judaism. It was one of the reasons that the Jews rejected Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah, because he claimed to be one with God. He claimed to be God as well. And that was a real problem for them because in this verse, they are told that God is one. There is no duality in him. There's no polytheism. Right? This is a real heart issue for the Jewish people. And when Jesus quotes this, and what God intended when he said this was to say that the Lord our God, the Lord is alone. There is no one else like Yahweh in all the earth, in all the gods that men will worship. There is no one like Yahweh. He is unique and distinct from them. He is above them and beyond them. They could not compare to him. There is one God and one God only who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Yahweh is his name, and he reigns over all. That's how Jesus begins his answer by framing for us who God is right, and probably winning a lot of favor for himself with his Jewish opponents at the same time. But then he includes the next line of the Shema of the instruction that God gives to his people, which is this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. This is God's most basic instruction to his people. Will you love me? That's actually all I want from you, is I want your heart. I want your devotion. I want you to call me mine, and I want to call you, I want you to call me yours, and I want to call you mine. I want every part of you, every faculty of your being, I want that to be bent towards me. Now, I'm still quite reasonably young in this room. I fall into the younger part of the spectrum. I'm 33 years old. I've been married for two and a half years. And I've known Jesus for 15. And I, and I love my wife, Glenda. I love her deeply, and I love her completely, and I love her more and more each day, and I thank the Lord for that. And by God's grace, I love Him even more. 
But over the last couple of years, I've, as I've led in Musenberg, I've had the privilege to get to know a guy called Reg. Some of you might have met Reg. Um, he's been along at some of the primetime events, or you might have just known him because he's been around for a while. Reg is 87 years old, and he's still very active. He goes surfing in Musenberg every week. Uh, he's a fantastic show. They know him well at Mead. We're going to have a coffee there next week. The end of last year, Reg lost his wife, Gladys, after 57 years of marriage. And uh, we, we, had the privilege, we had the privilege of celebrating 55 years together. They did like a recommitment service, just a reaffirmation of the love that they had for one another at our Musenberg congregation two years ago. And it was beautiful. It was so wonderful. And I want to tell you, friends, I've learned something about love from that man. Because just after they had done that recommitment one another, Gladys slowly began to lose her mental capacity. Until, we're still right here, until in the last year of her life, she was barely able to communicate, she couldn't really speak, she was bound to a wheelchair, and she had to eat all of her food in liquid form. I want you to know, as I walked with Reg through that time, he never left her side. She would come to church faithfully with him because Reg would bring her. Daily, he would get up, he would wash her, he would dress her, he would feed her. He would take her for walks, pushing her around at Musenberg in her wheelchair. He would sit with her quietly outside as they watched the, the sea or back at home. They continued to sleep together in the same bed, although Gladys would get night terrors. And she'd wake up screaming, shouting, and kicking, but be unable to communicate what was wrong. And through it all, Reg was by her side. And that man, he modeled for me in such a powerful way what love really looks like. He loved Gladys with the fullness of his heart and his soul. He loved her in sickness and in life, in health, in life and in death, in better and in worse, in times of plenty and in times of want. And through it all, they both followed Jesus. And I believe they served the purposes of God in their generation. I only got to know Gladys for about three years, but I was at her funeral, and I've been, I was so blessed to sit and to listen to the life of a woman who had followed God faithfully for 90-odd years. It's the love that God desires for us to have. He wants to have that with us, and He wants us to have that with Him. With him. He wants us to love Him with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, and all of our strength, to just love Him. It's the relationship that He wants with us. He's not a boss that you have to report to with your list of tasks that you've now done. You've managed to check them off the list. He's also not a hobby that he wants you to give some time to whenever you have a spare moment and you're just like, oh, I've got a little bit of time today. He's not a theological belief or a faith statement or a creed that we can write. He is the king of kings. He is the king of glory. And he desires to be with us, to know us and to love us and for us to love him. He is desperate for us that we would find ourselves in Him, that we would be so full of Him, so consumed in Him that thoughts of Him would invade every moment of our day. He wouldn't just be a passing interest, but it would be the object of our affection and our devotion and our allegiance, that He would be front and center in our lives, not something that we tag on to the side. And He so desires this for us. He so desires us to love Him that He loved us in a way that was incredible. He, gave, he didn't hold anything back from loving us. Instead, He said, I, I, I see you and I've given you the law 
and, and I love you as my people, but for years and years and centuries, you've just failed to find me. And you fail to be in the relationship with me that I so desire. And so Jesus and the Father and the Spirit get together and they say, what are we going to do? And Jesus says, you know what? I will come down. I will come down and I will live out the law that you can't live. And I will give up my life as God himself so that you would just come to know me. That's how much I love you, my people. That's how much I love you. I want you to know how deep my love is for you. And I want you to love me in the same way. That's what God desires for us, that we would love Him so deeply, just as He loves us so deeply. That's to be the chief joy of life, that we would be fully and completely given over to Him. And Jesus could have left it there. He could have said, that's it, guys. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. And and that's coming straight out of the Shema. That's coming out of the roots of Jewish culture, the heart of their monotheism. But Jesus recognizes that to leave it there would be deficient. It would be, it would be inadequate. Right? And so he, he recognizes that he needs to add to that, that the love that we have for God, the love that overflows in our hearts, needs to overflow into those around us. And so he quotes from Leviticus chapter 19. And he says, we need to love our neighbor as ourselves. It's a rather obscure verse. It's in amongst a collection of rather arbitrary commands that govern all forms of life. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Because Jesus understands that God's desire for us is that what we have with Him, where we are filled in Him and overflowing in Him, that that would naturally outflow to others. Just as he has loved us, so we would love others. Jesus says, that's how you will know that you are my disciple. If you look at the Ten Commandments, kind of a great summary of the 613 commandments of the Old Testament law, you'll notice you can break them into two parts. And the first part addresses our relationship that we are called to have with God. Worship only me. Do not make any other idols or worship them. Do not use my name in vain and keep my Sabbath. The first four commandments. The second part addresses our relationship with others. Honor your parents. Do not murder, commit adultery, steal, give false witness, or covet what your neighbor has. That's why when Jesus tells the story and when Matthew records it for us, Jesus says the whole law and the prophets hang on these two things. To love God with everything that you have and to love your neighbor as yourself. Everything else about God, every other commandment that God has given, all 603 other commandments, all, all 10 commandments, they fit into those two because the commandments find their nature as an expression of love. That's what the, they're not a list of do's and don'ts, but because the God who gave them desires above all else to be in a love relationship with His children, Every command that issues forth from God has its foundation in love. To love God and to love others. And I think it's worth noting the magnitude of that love. Because it is big. It is wide. It is largely encompassing so much of our life. Jesus doesn't say love the Lord your God with a little bit of your heart and some of your mind and a bit of your strength. Right? But make sure you give stuff to other spaces. He says, no, I want you to give it all. I want you to love God with all of your heart and all of your mind and all of your soul and all of your strength. Four times. 
because God hasn't held back in the way in which he has loved us. Jesus gave his life for us. From eternity past and to eternity future, the eternal God reigns as Father, Son, and Spirit, perfectly united in heart, soul, and mind. And yet, to demonstrate his love for us, Jesus came down and died a death on a cross, and he has to cry out this one time only in all of eternity, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where are you? I don't know you anymore. I can't find you. I can't see you in this space. Can you imagine that? That's the depth of love that God has for us. He wants us to have for Him and for that to overflow into others. And I love how Jesus sets the bar for neighbor, right? He uses the most relatable measure. He says, you know, the degree to which you love yourself, to which you value yourself, you esteem yourself, well, I want you to just begin to do that for others as well. That's what I've done in loving you. And in case we want to try and get technical about who our neighbors are, and Jesus redefines that for us as well. You remember the parable of the Good Samaritan? Huh? Your neighbor or all those who are around you, you have the opportunity to love. I mean, I, that's pretty serious stuff. I, I find that, that quite intensely challenging, to be honest. It's not the easiest thing to do. But that's it. That's the heart of being a Christian. That's the heart of what it means to know God is to love Him with all that we have and then to allow that love to flow through us into others and to love them. A deep, passionate, zealous, single-minded love for God that just overflows into all that we meet. Love God. Love the people He's created. That's our call. Just before we begin to bring this to a close, let's notice one more thing. When our, when our lawyer hears Jesus' answer, he agrees with it, and he affirms it, and he actually goes a step further. And he says, you know what? It is right, as you say, to love God with everything and to, to love your neighbor as yourself. These things are more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. See, the interesting thing is burnt offerings and sacrifices is the way in which God told his people to show their devotion to him. They were his commands. And yet Jesus is able to affirm this statement, I think, for two reasons. One, because God has already said it numerous times through his prophets. You can read in 1 Samuel 15:22 or Hosea 6, 6. But I think at a much deeper level, God is able to affirm that. Jesus affirms that because God finds greater joy in the genuine love and devotion of his people than he does in the use of ritual to maintain the facade of relationship. That makes sense. God finds greater joy in the genuine love and devotion of His people than He does in the use of ritual to maintain relationship, to maintain the facade of relationship. What that means for us, God cares so much more about your heart than about your church attendance. He cares so much more about your desire for Him than the fact that your language is clean. He cares so much more about the depth of the devotion in your heart to Him than about whether or not you read your Bible this morning. Those things are secondary to Him because His primary desire in life is that you would love Him, that He would love you, and that you would love others. 
Because when that is happening, when that deep love for God is a part of your life, the other things happen. You go to church, and your language becomes pure, and you read the Scriptures because you want to, because they're the fruits of a life that's lived for God, not because you're trying to do the things that God told you you had to do. Let's bring, let's bring this thing into land. What are we going to do with these words of Jesus, these words that perhaps we know quite well? You know, Jesus wrote a letter to the church in Ephesus. He said this, I know your deeds. I know your hard work. I know your perseverance. I know that you can't tolerate wicked people, that you've tested those who claim to be apostles, those who would lead my people astray. You've tested their claim and found that them to be false. I know that you have persevered and you've endured many hardships for my name and you have not grown weary. And I want to commend you for those things. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love that you had at first. You've lost the love. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. It's really easy for us to do. We do all day long. Our lives are about productivity and output deadlines and performance. We fill our lives up with busyness and stuff. And sometimes along the way, love dies. Friends, this is not something I'm just speaking about theoretically. This is something I, can, I, I want to testify to as something that God has done recently in me. As we were at the Immerse Conference, I was there. And we had a great time and there was lots of great content and the guys were speaking. But right at the end, at the very last session... As I sat with the Lord, God just dropped this thing into my heart. And he said, Brad, have you noticed that you've pulled back? That you've stepped away from me? You've been doing a lot. You've been, you've been preaching a lot. You've been doing ministry a lot. Huh? But you've stepped back, and I miss you. You've lost. The love has gone. It's grown colder. It's dying. And so he led me into a place of repentance. And I fell on my knees, and I, I was weeping before the Lord, but there were no tears. So it was like a dry weep. I don't understand it. Right. But in that space, the Spirit of God met me, and He spoke life into me again. And He spoke joy into me again, and He spoke fire and faith and hope into my heart. And I got up from that place full in the Spirit. And I went and I began to do ministry with boldness and confidence again because God had touched me. And He had shown me again what it looks like to be in love. As I was preparing for my message today, I came across an article by a chap called Greg Morse. He's a writer for Desiring God. And I want to read you an extract from that this morning. As I do that, I want to invite you to just close your eyes and to let these words flow through you and if as you hear them, you hear the voice of the Spirit beginning to nudge you, or as we've been already speaking this morning, you felt God begin to call out and say, you know what, this is me. I want to encourage you to, to respond with courage afterwards. He says this, he says, Darkness is never so dark as when a redeemed soul isn't satisfied in God. The richness of Scripture has no taste. The preacher's sermon deflects or fleshly armor. Prayers seem to be stamped to return to sender. 
distractions intrude the most, the best attempts to have quiet moments with God. Your heart sighs. Memories of blazing intimacy with Christ now make the soul shiver. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, rings truer than any other lyric. You might even fear that after all this time, you aren't really his. I've experienced several of these seasons during my decade as a Christian. It's a valley of the shadow of death, a desert wilderness in which Satan comes to tempt and to deceive. And during these times, I've wanted to blame God for where I ended up, and I wanted to double down on my rebellion. But the haunting question that God asked his spiritually callous people shoots down all my excuses. Jeremiah 2 verse 5, what wrong did you find in me that you went far from me? What wrong did you find in me that you went far from me? When we find ourselves far from God, He's never the one to blame. And this makes the, darkest, the darkness darker. And I know that spiritual dullness often results from my treating God like a pigeon in the park to whom I leisurely throw the crumbs of my leftover devotion after a long day of caring about other things. In such seasons, God allows my joylessness to snap me out of treating him as a hobby. To learn afresh to seek his face as if he was, well, God. I've even dressed up my desertion in religious robes. I might refuse discipline by calling it legalism. Refuse God's presence, calling it freedom. Refuse to commune with him, calling it salvation by grace. Christ's blood becomes that which was shed so that I might safely ignore him. Of course, I overbook my schedule to hide my negligence. Like a criminal mastermind, I premeditate alibis to exonerate myself from spiritual complacency. And when questioned like those other guests who also wickedly excuse themselves, I keep my calendar close at hand to justify not attending my master's banquet. And I write off the whole bit about loving Jesus above everything else or I can't be his disciple, calling it rhetorical hyperbole. Even though I love Jesus, my love threatens to grow cold when the familiar becomes taken for granted and neglected. Even though I love Jesus, my love threatens to grow cold when the familiar becomes taken for granted and neglected. See, friends, the church in Revelation privately abandoned Jesus in their public crusade for their truth about him. And they exchanged Jesus himself for theological images of their Savior. They exchanged Jesus himself for theological truths about him. It's really easy for us to do. We can talk about Jesus. We can even stand for Jesus. But right down at the heart, do we spend time with him? Are our hearts full of love for Him? Do our hearts yearn for Him more and more? Or have they kind of grown a bit cold? Jesus' command to the church in Revelation was to remember. Remember what it was like. Remember when you first came to know me and the light of the Spirit of God touched your heart and the fire burned brightly and you couldn't wait to just be in another time of worship with God's people because the fire of God was there and you loved Him. Remember what it was like when you read Scripture and it came alive. 
Remember when you prayed and it felt like you had a red telephone right to the Lord and He heard your prayers and you heard His voice. And then repent. Repent of stepping back, of growing cold, of withdrawing, of letting other things in the craziness of life take that position of front and center. And return. Come back to me. Come and do the things you did at first. Come and be back in that place where the fullness of your love for me is right there. And the fullness of my love for you is right in you. And you're able to live not out of duty, but out of joy. Because God is there. Friends, if God is speaking to you at all this morning, I don't want to just end here. I want to be trusting, and we are trusting this morning, that by the Spirit, God would set a fire a new life, a new love, a new joy, a new hope for us. And so I want to invite you to be bold and courageous this morning. And if, if you want to trust for God to come and bring new life into your heart, a new joy into your walk with Him, a new love for Him to well up deep within you because you recognize, you know what, maybe it's grown a little cold and you've stepped a little back. And I'll call you to be bold this morning and if you want to stand, we're going to minister together. Maybe you even want to kneel. That's up to you. But if you would like God to come and to move you back towards that place of the depth, deepness and the fullness of His love for you, won't you stand? Why don't you do that now together? Thank you, Lord. Thank you, God. What we're going to do now is we're going to do something a little different. So I'm not just going to pray for all of us. But I want to ask us to pray for one another. And... So if you're not standing and you are, you're feeling you're carrying the fullness of God's love in your heart, right, I'd love to ask you to move around and to find someone who is standing. This is not a space where we judge one another, but where we love one another, where we are able to show one another the love that we have for them because we care so deeply about our brothers and sisters because we so desire for them to walk in the fullness of the love of God, that God would renew that and restore that in us. And so if you feel able to do that, we're going to take a time of, of extended ministry. I don't want to just brush this off briefly. And so won't you, won't you, if you feel able to pray for someone, won't you find people around you who are standing, just get up right now and, and just go and pray with them. Lay hands on one another. Let's pray for the power of God's love, for the fullness of His Spirit, for the joy and the life that is in Him to be poured out into all of us. And as you do that, you do it because of the Spirit. It's the grace of God working through you. So once you begin to do that now, if some of you feel able to do that, just go around. Let's pray for one another. And I want to pray for those of you who don't feel like you're able to go and to pray for someone. Won't you just begin to pray for everyone? Won't you just pray 
Let's raise the faith expectancy in this room. Let's begin to pray that God would minister His love and His grace and His Spirit into the lives of our brothers and sisters. That they would know the love of God, the fullness of the greatness of God. That they would be full to the very fullness. That they would be overflowing with the goodness of God. Let's begin to pray together for one another, friends. Let's trust God for this. And if you want to even you want to pray out loud, let's begin to do that. Let's lift the, the expectation of the presence of God in this space, because I believe God is here. I believe He wants to speak life. And so, God, we call the love of God into this place. We call the Spirit of God into this place. We say, come, Lord Jesus, and touch your children. Come and minister your love to us, God. Come and draw us back to the place that we used to have with you, the place of fullness, the place of joy, the place of life. Lord, we desire that. We don't want to live our lives with you in, in drudgery. We don't want life with you to be a chore, God, to be difficult, to feel like we're going through the motions of stuff, to feel like our prayers are hitting the ceiling, Lord, but we want to know again the depth and the fullness of the love of God. And so I pray, Lord, where we have stepped back, God, give us, forgive us, Lord. Forgive us, God, and give us grace to step into the fullness of the love that you have for us. I thank you, Lord, that your love for us is so great. It is so deep. It is so powerful. Jesus, you gave up everything to show us the magnitude of God's love for us, to show us the greatness of the goodness of your love, that we would know you and be found in you. Come, Lord Jesus, come and pour that out among us. Come and pour out your grace amongst us. Come and set a fresh fire in our hearts, Lord. We declare this morning there would be a turning point, God. There would be a change, Lord, that something would shift in the Spirit this morning, that we would no longer continue in human efforts, but we would be in the fullness of the Spirit of God that we would be moved by you and led by you and empowered by you, that our life would be full of joy because it is full of you. That daily, God, as we go into our works, our week at work, into our families, into our friendships, Lord, that we would carry the love of Christ so we would know you moment by moment, day by day. Come, God, come and pour out your Spirit amongst your children. Jesus, you declared that the Father loves to give the Holy Spirit to his children. You declared that, God. And so we call it out this morning. We say, come and pour out your Spirit amongst us, God. Come and pour out the Spirit of life, the Spirit of joy, the Spirit of hope. Let there be new birth this morning, God. Let there be new life this morning. Lord, that which is old, that which has died, we pray, wipe away, Lord. Wipe away and renew, God. Pour new wine into new wineskins, Lord. Let there be new life amongst us this morning. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. Better it is you told us to spend one day in the presence of God than a thousand days anywhere else. Lord, we want to spend every day in your presence because you have won that for us, Jesus, by your blood on the cross. You have opened up the way for us to enter in, to come boldly before your throne of grace to receive help and mercy in our time of need. You have washed us clean. You present us before the Father, holy and sanctified in love. Come and pour out your love over us, God. Come and pour it out, Lord. We will rest in you, God. We soak in you. Oh, thank you, God.
We just declare where the enemy has stolen ground in our lives this morning. We tell you now in the name of Jesus to be gone. That you have no right and no authority to maintain a hold over the lives of your children. And we release the Spirit of God. We release the love of God to flow, to pour out, to bring new life. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, God. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, God. If you want to continue to take some time to be with the Lord, I want to say you're free to do that. If you want to go and drink some tea and coffee and love one another, you're free to do that as well. Just please do that quietly for those who remain in a space of prayer and save your chatting until we're outside.